1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is God's word for you this morning. You can be seated. Well, uh, good morning. My name is Michael. For those of you who uh, haven't met me, I am one of the pastors here. I serve under Pastor Zach in Doxa Students. So I get to teach the junior hires and high schoolers, which is just an amazing privilege. Um, thank you. Uh, cool. Appreciate that. <laughs> Um, and it's also a little bit maybe ironic that I would get this passage because it has the youth group verse, right? Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. That's, a, that's what we do every Wednesday. We just teach that verse over and over and over on repeat. Um, just kidding. We don't do that. We actually teach your students the full counsel of God. Um, we go through two books of the Bible at least per year, and we go through a theme study so they can see how a theme weaves itself through the story of Scripture and is connected to the story of the, go the gospel, Genesis to Revelation. Uh, and we are actually, Zach and I are offering a class on that this spring too, Biblical Theology of Water. A boring title, honestly, water, what, who cares? But an amazing theme, so come hang out. It will be really, really cool. Um, but enough of the plug, let's get into God's Word. Uh, the title of our message is The Pastor's Priorities. The Pastor's Priorities. So we've been going through First Timothy, this series called The Dearest Place on Earth, which is the church. The church is the dearest place on earth because the church is where Jesus has promised to meet us. And last week we saw Paul tell Timothy, hey, if you want to be a good servant of Christ, this is what the good servant looks like. This is what a pastor is supposed to look like. And this week he's continuing that theme. He's saying, hey, if you want to be a good servant, if you want to pastor well, this is what you must prioritize. So the passages are connected. And here's our big idea for the morning. The pastor's priority should be outward, inward, and onward. The pastor's priority should be outward, inward, and onward. We'll tease out what each of those means. Uh, th this passage, though, is, is structured in kind of an interesting way. Usually, we kind of just go top to bottom through passages, especially if in their new, they're in New Testament letters. This one is cyclical, so Paul will introduce an idea. And then he'll introduce a second idea. And then he'll go back to the first idea. And then he'll go back to the second idea. And then he'll end it by going to the first idea and the second idea. And then he'll add a third one. And it'll be the summary of the whole thing. So we're not really going to go top to bottom. We're going to pick out each of those ideas. But we are going to hit each verse. Uh, and throughout this passage, we're going to see three priorities, which are really tied for the first priority for the pastor. This is going to be a pastor-focused sermon. 
not going to be a me-focused sermon. I'm not the only pastor. It's not about me, but it is about what pastors are supposed to prioritize. But even in this message where we learn what pastors are supposed to prioritize, you are going to see applications that connect to your life as well, and we will uh, tease those out as we get to them. So let's hit the first priority. Pastor's first priority should be outward. He's supposed to authoritatively proclaim the word of God. He's supposed to authoritatively proclaim the word of God. We see this in verse 11. This is where Paul starts. He says, command and teach these things. Now, in this short little verse, uh, we get a balanced summary of exactly what the pastor is supposed to do. He's supposed to command and he's supposed to teach. He does both. Now, Now, what's the difference? Well, commanding implies authority. Command is, this is what you must do. It's heavy. It's a weighty word. Teach, on the other hand, it leans on authority, for sure, but teaching is about teasing out the underlying logic. It's, I want you to understand why you must do this. So command says, you must do this. Teaching says, this is why you should do this. And which one does the pastor do? It's both. He's supposed to do both. Paul wants pastors to command obedience, and he wants pastors to help God's people understand why. So the next logical question here is, command and teach what? Like, do I have the authority to command you to buy a particular color of car? Can I command you to cheat on your tax return this year? But like, what if I teach you why you should too? Is that, is that okay then? Does that fit within these parameters? Like what is the pastor supposed to command and teach? Well, verse 11 tells us the pastor is supposed to command and teach these things. So that clears it right up, right? <laughs> what are these things? Well, he uses this phrase, these things, a lot in 1 Timothy. The these things in verse 11 is the same as the these things in verse 6 that we saw last week, and it was the things in verses 1 through 5. Summary of those things, sound doctrine. Pastors are supposed to command and teach sound doctrine. And if we remember from just going through this book, sound doctrine, sound means healthy. It's it's healthy doctrine. Doctrine is the stuff that Christians believe from the scriptures. And when sound doctrine is only sound doctrine when a sound life flows from it. So you can believe all the right things in your head, but if those things haven't actually transformed the way that you live, you don't hold to sound doctrine yet. And so Paul says, command the life that flows from sound doctrine and teach the sound doctrine. That's what he's saying here. But if you haven't been around the church a whole lot, that still might seem a little bit vague. Okay, so what do Christians believe? Well, verse 13 fills out the picture for us. Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This is the same picture in verse 11, just with different words. He says, be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, the exhortation, and the teaching. 
pastor's first priority must be exhorting. That lines up with commanding. Exhorting is a context-specific word. Think of a coach, right? If you're doing terrible, he's going to be on your case. He's going to be giving you commands to make you shape up. If you're struggling but doing your best, he's going to be encouraging. He's a good coach. He's going to be encouraging you. It's commanding, it's encouraging, it's whatever you need for your walk with Christ. That's what exhortation is. That parallel is commanding. And then the other word is teaching. We, we already saw what that is. Teaching is uh, helping you understand it for yourself. So Paul says, be devoted to exhorting and be devoted to teaching. And what do we exhort and teach? It's Scripture. It's Scripture. It's all within the context of the public reading of Scripture. That's why our service has been so saturated with Scripture this morning. We sang a psalm. We sang a song straight out of First Timothy a little earlier. Uh, Max read Hebrews 10. It has all been about the public reading of Scripture. It's putting the Word before you so that you can hear what God's Word says for yourself, and then it's calling you to obey it, and it's helping you understand it. That is the pastor's first priority. And so God's Word is the thing. God's Word is these things in verse 11. It is all about God's Word. And he says, be devoted to it. Be devoted to it. That's strong language. You are not devoted to many things, are you? Like truly devoted. And that's what he says the pastor must do. That must be the pastor's attitude towards Scripture. He fills out the picture even more in verse 16. He says, keep a close watch on the teaching. Persist in it. That word keep a close watch is translated hold fast in other passages. It's keep a tight grip on it. Keep a tight grip on sound doctrine. Be unwilling to compromise on true doctrine. That is what the pastor does. Y'all, we as pastors and we as a church do not have permission to move on from this book. We never got the okay. Paul said, this is your mission until I come. But as far as we know, Paul never came back. So Timothy spent the rest of his life preaching and teaching this book. Paul never told us to do anything different. And so what do we do until we die? We preach and teach this book. It is all about the book. So what do you do with this? Well, if pastors are supposed to command and teach God's word, then this passage is a call to you to receive the command and teaching from God's word. That's what this text wants you to do. See, if God's word says it, then we as pastors must command it and you must obey it. Not because it's me commanding it or whatever, it's not that. It's because my job is to repeat what this book says. And so when I faithfully repeat what this book says, when any of our pastors do that, all we're doing is repeating God's words to you. And they carry the authority that God's word carries because it's God's word. And so your pastor's responsibility 
Our responsibility is to make sure our every word lines up with God's every word. And your responsibility is to obey it. But that's not your only responsibility. Because your responsibility is to receive the teaching too. Like it's not just the commands. You don't just take it and assume we've got the word right. You understand it as well. You, you pour over it. You, you make sure what we're saying is actually coming from the text. You need to know the text for yourself. Because we might botch it. We might get off mission. It's possible. I pray it doesn't happen. We guard against it, but it may happen. And to the extent that we get off mission, you need to know the word. The word is the source of your life as a believer. So Paul gives this first priority. Proclaim the word with authority. Command and teach. Then he gives a second priority. Second priority is inward. He says, cultivate your character and gifts. Cultivate your character and gifts. We see that in verse 16 as well. Not only does he say to keep a close watch on the teaching, he says, keep a close watch on yourself. Keep a close watch, a tight grip on yourself. Paul wants pastors to cultivate their character and their gifts. We'll take that a piece at a time. So first, character. The pastor needs to be obsessed with personal character. Obsessed. It is a big deal. Why? Well, verse 12 tells us. Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believer's an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So why must pastors keep a tight grip on themselves, on their character? Because we're supposed to be examples. We're supposed to be examples. You should be able to look at your pastors and say, oh, I get it. I, like, I understand what it looks like to be a Christian now. I, I understand how to live out what I believe in the gospel because I can see you doing it. That makes sense. And for that reason, the pastor must cultivate character. I mean, how many different times across the New Testament? It's all over the place. As Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That is the ordinary pattern that the New Testament sets out for you to grow in your sanctification. You have an example in your pastors. And think about the original context, right? We've talked about what's going on, why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. Uh, he's sent to Ephesus. He's got to correct some issues. There's some things going on. There's some false doctrine. There's some unsound living. And he is sent in to correct it. And so imagine, young Timothy comes in with all the youthful swagger he can muster. I'm here. Uh, Paul sent me to fix some things, so I uh, heard you guys are kind of messing up, but don't worry, I'm here now, <laughs> we're good. <laughs> how, do the, how do the elders respond to that? What do the older guys in the congregation say to that? They bow before his glorious splendor, right? <laughs> no, no, they smack him around. 
They give them a what for. That's what older guys do to younger guys when younger guys come in all cocky. That's how it works. That's how God has built it to work. But Timothy has a serious mission. And so what does Paul tell him to do to make sure that that doesn't happen? Well, he doesn't tell the older guys, you know what? He's young. Go easy on him. It's not what he does. The old guy smack around is a good thing. We need more of it in this church, honestly. It would make us healthier. Uh, I have in my notes to give the older guys permission to smack around the young guys a little bit, but the reality is you don't need permission. You're going to do it anyway. I don't have to tell you to do that. So please do it. We need it. It's good for our maturity. Paul doesn't tell them not to. He tells Timothy, don't live in such a way that you deserve it. Be better. Be mature. Be a grown-up pastor. Be an example. He tells Timothy, be the kind of guy that the older guys can point to and say, man, I wish I looked like him when I was younger. Man, I wish my sons looked like him. Man, what an example. This is really, really important, and it teaches us that pastors are supposed to be examples to the church. The point is that the pastor's character must be a model so that the congregation can see how to live like Christ. What character, though? Well, he gives uh, five things. We get uh, two that, that talk about the outward arena where you see the character, and then we get three examples of the actual character. And I think these characters are specifically tailored to Timothy as a young man because we know there's more character that the pastor needs, right? We were here for chapter three. There's all kinds of things required that aren't in this list. This list is not exhaustive. This list is tailored for young men, but it is applicable to everyone. So first he gives the outward arena where you're going to see the character. He, he says in your speech and in your conduct. Speech and conduct. What you say and what you do. What else is there to a person? Speech and conduct is a whole person viewed from the outside. But by someone's speech and conduct, you can tell exactly who they are. You can tell exactly what they believe. You can tell exactly what they love by their speech and conduct. And then he moves inward. He gives three inward virtues. Love, faith, and purity. So first, love. What is love? Well, there are two pieces to love. Both are critical. Uh, love is an orientation towards the ultimate good of the one that you love. Not proximate goods, not immediate gratification, but ultimate good. In, in Timothy's case, in the pastor's case, the ultimate good of the congregation is their glorification. And so it's an orientation toward the ultimate good of the one you love and its affections for the one you love. It's both. And they're both married together in a perfect unity. I know we live in a, the affection side culture, right? That's, we, we swing wildly there, and so we overcorrect and swing only to the love is not a feeling but an action side. But the reality is it's both. And we know it's both because we can see Paul's example. The same Paul who can put the hurt on churches when they, he needs to for their good. 
so that they would reach Christ mature. That same Paul can write to churches and say things like, oh, I have so much anxiety for every single church I've planted. He'll write to the Philippians and he'll say, I long to see you with the affections of Christ Jesus. It's literally the, it's the guts. It's the, that belly feeling of love that you have for a person. He says, the same feeling of love that Jesus has for you, I have it for you. That's how bad I want to see you. Paul does both. We ought to do both. The pastor ought to have both the orientation towards the ultimate good and the affections married together for you, Christ's people so that the pastor can be an example to you of how to love. So he says love, and then he says faith. Faith, I think maybe the most immediate implication of that is uh, the pastor needs to be a believer. He needs to, you know, have faith, right? If the pastor's going to be an example to believers, he's got to be a believer, that's just how it works. He needs to hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And what must the pastor believe? Well, we saw it this morning. We saw it Christmas Eve. It's from chapter 3. It's the gospel. It's the news that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. It's the message that the eternal second person of the Trinity, very God of God, took on human flesh, became one of us, stepped into history, lived a perfect life under God's law, the life that you should have lived but didn't. He died in your place, suffering under the wrath of God for your sins so that you don't have to. And then he rose victorious from the dead three days later, vindicating all the work that he did on the cross, defeating sin and death once for all, and then he ascended to the right hand of God, where he rules as king over all creation, the only true God, the only savior from sin. That is what the pastor must believe, because that is what you must believe. That is what we proclaim, because that's what God's word proclaims. So he says love, and he says faith. And then he gives a third virtue, purity. That one, I think, is especially tailored to young men. Purity. This is actually a, a more general term than we tend to think and we, for various cultural reasons, we tend to equate purity with uh, the sexual arena, and it's, it's fitting in that arena for sure. Uh, but Paul means it more generally here. This word actually, he's ripped it straight from the Greek Old Testament. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's the word used to describe the purity rituals in the Old Covenant. So under the old agreement with God before Christ came, uh, you had to not only keep yourself from sin, but if you wanted to enter God's presence, you had to keep yourself from things that would make you unclean, things that would pollute you, things like dead bodies, bodily fluids, clothing with uh, mixed fabrics, 
unclean foods, stuff that isn't inherently sinful. It's not, it's not wrong to wear clothes with mixed fabrics, but the rules were put in place to demonstrate the kind of purity that God requires, or rather the level of purity that God requires in order to enter his presence. But now Jesus has come. Jesus has purified us once and for all. We no longer have to live under those laws. Praise God for what Jesus has done. But the level of God's purity hasn't changed. We have just been brought up to it. And now we need to live in accord with it. And so Paul calls the pastor, especially the young pastor, to be an example of purity. Paul is calling pastors and Paul is calling you to pure religion. And what is pure religion? James 1.27 tells us, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Paul actually flips the order, but he's following the same idea. What's he going to talk about next chapter? Widows. What's he talking about here? Keeping oneself unstained from the world. Paul and James agree on what pure religion is. And so, what this tells us is the pastor's life should issue in words and works that demonstrate pure religion. Part of our job is to show you what it looks like to keep yourself unstained from sin. And why is that? Because that's the call to you. This is the call that the scripture has for you. In your words and works, you are called by the strength of Christ, by the power of his spirit, but you truly acting, you are called to demonstrate faith in Christ, to demonstrate love for his people, and to demonstrate purity towards sin. And for your walk, God has given pastors as an example to help you along. So another application of that might be pray for us. Pray for us that we might be the example that we need to be. The pastor must cultivate his character so that he can demonstrate how to live faithfully. And that's what Paul's calling Timothy to do. That's what he's calling pastors to do. And that's what he's calling you to do. But it's not the only thing he calls us to cultivate in this passage. He also calls us to cultivate our gifts. The pastor needs to cultivate his gifting. Look at verse 14. He says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Y'all, if your pastors are doing our job right, it's not just a one hour a week thing. It takes cultivation. This is why we read so much. This is why we pray so much. This is why we watch YouTube videos and take classes and learn how to do things because the gifts that God has given in order to shepherd you are the kinds of things that can grow. That's what this passage is telling us. But, but what's actually going on here? Because this can feel a little bit 
kind of spooky, right? Like maybe they, they put their hands on him and then magically something kind of got transferred and there's some prophecy going on here. And like, what, what is happening here? And what is this telling us? Well, there's some, there's some really important theology in this passage. Um, first, Paul tells us what a call to ministry looks like here. Remember, Timothy had a job. He had a job given to him by God through the apostle Paul And that job was to go into a hard place and correct some things, get some things back on track. And what moment does Paul point to in Timothy's life in order to remind him, hey, you have been commissioned by God? It was when the elders laid hands on him. That's the moment that he points to. You know, Timothy, that you have a divine commission because the elders laid their hands on you. And this is a consistent pattern that we see all across the story of Scripture. Uh, Even back in Genesis, the fathers bless their sons by laying their hands on them and prophesying over them. Levites become priests when the current priests and the congregation lay their hands on them. Joshua becomes the replacement for Moses, and the text tells us he receives some of Moses' authority when Moses lays his hands on him. Same thing happens with Elijah and Elisha. Elisha receives a double portion when he uh, touches Elijah's cloak, actually. So that's a little different, but similar idea. And Jesus is commissioned before the world as the divine Messiah at his baptism when the Father sends the Spirit to descend upon him figuratively laying his hands on him. And then the same thing happens when Jesus and the Father send the Spirit to commission the apostles and to give the apostles Jesus' authority. And then the apostles lay their hands on the deacons. And here we learn that the pattern continues on to pastors. What's the point? If you aspire to ministry, praise God. Such an awesome thing. We saw that in chapter three. You desire a good thing. We just had some interns graduate. We have a new batch of interns coming up here soon, and I think they're going to be announced uh, soon, for, especially for all of you. But for anyone who aspires to ministry, that is an awesome thing, but you are not a pastor until a body of elders lays their hands on you. That's how this seems to work. You might think you had a vision or a word from the Lord saying you were going to be in ministry one day? Cool, praise God. Timothy did too. That's what the verse says, right? There were some prophecies given earlier in his life that pointed forward to his future ministry one day, but Timothy became a pastor when the elders laid their hands on him. And Timothy received his gifts the gifts of the Spirit that he needed in order to accomplish the work that God called him to when the elders laid their hands on him. Does that feel weird? It's a little different from how we tend to think about things, right? A connection between the physical and the spiritual. It's a little bit hard to take, but it seems to be what the passage is saying. It says, don't neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. When the council laid their hands on you. So there is something about this laying on of hands that not only makes someone a pastor, but actually gives them the gifts that they need to pastor. 
Now to return back to our main point, what does he call pastors to do with these gifts? Cultivate them. Hone them. Grow in them. Get better at them. Spend the time you need to spend in the study and then step in front of Christ's church regularly and die in front of them regularly in such a way that they can see your progress. That's the end of verse 15. Gifts are the kind of thing that you can grow better at. Spiritual gifts the things that the Spirit gives you in order to serve the church, you can make progress in them, according to verse 15. And so what's the call to you here? We see what the call is to pastors. What's the call to you? Well, first, you should probably find a church where the pastors have a valid calling. The guy that felt like everything was wrong, couldn't really kind of find a sending church, nobody wanted to take him, and so he decided to just call himself to ministry. That's not a good place to be. Don't be that person. Pastors become pastors when the elders lay their hands on them. Another application here. Uh, if pastors are supposed to be an example and we're supposed to cultivate our gifts, then you should be cultivating your gifts. This passage calls you to cultivate your gifts. If gifts are the kind of things that can grow, then you should be investing in them. And I'm not talking about taking a personality test relabeled as a spiritual gifts test, finding your gift and then do it, like doing it that way. No, no, no. The way you find your gifts is you start serving in the church. You start fellowshipping with Christ's people. Start doing things to help Christ's people. And as you serve, you figure out what you're good at. You get people saying things like, hey, have you ever considered doing this? You're actually really good at that. I'm really thankful for, that you're here. It's awesome to have you. Things like that are the way that the Spirit will help you step into the ways that He has uniquely gifted you to serve the church. And then you invest in them. You invest in those gifts. You read books. You watch videos. You go to seminars, you spend time growing in them so that you can even more faithfully serve Christ's church. So pastors are called to cultivate character, which is then a call to you to cultivate character. And pastors are called to cultivate their gifts, which is then a call to you to cultivate your gifts. Third priority. Really, it's the third first priority. All three of these are first priority. So third first priority. Onward. Do not forget the goal. Pastors must never forget the goal. Verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For... By so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is where Paul ends it. Sound doctrine and sound pastoral character are a matter of life and death. That's why so many of the qualifications in chapter 3 for elders were character. 
For a job that's primarily about speaking the word, there wasn't a whole lot about speaking back in chapter 3, was there? It was, it was all character because character matters that much. It's a matter of life and death. Salvation hangs in the balance. Check out the end of uh, verse 16. That's pretty crazy, right? Part of my job is to save you and to save myself. Yeesh. That's heavy. That's serious. Now, you might be thinking, but I, I thought salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I thought there wasn't anything to do with works, my works or anyone else's works. I thought it was all Jesus' works on my behalf, and that's it. Amen. Yes. Praise God that it is that way. Salvation is all of grace. Your sins are forgiven by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But there's something you need to understand here, and this may be really helpful for your Bible reading just in general. Uh, keep this one in your back pocket. The Bible uses the word salvation in different senses. The word salvation is bigger than we tend to use it. So what do we think of when we think of salvation? It's the moment your sins were forgiven, right? You put your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven, they're washed clean forever, uh, and you're adopted as a son of God, and you're regenerated in all of that, which is amazing. Oh, and that is salvation. But that's only a piece of salvation. The Bible uses the word salvation in different senses. So when, when the Bible talks about salvation, it's describing this whole process where God has elected you in eternity past, God effectually calls you, he regenerates you, he gives you the faith that you need to believe in him, he forgives your sin, he adopts you as a son, and then he sanctifies you, he grows you more and more like Jesus, and then he causes you to persevere to the end, and then someday in the future, for all of us, we are glorified and resurrected. That whole process from start to finish, that is salvation. That is bigger than the way we often use it. And then what the Bible will do is it'll take, it'll take pieces of the puzzle. So you get the whole picture, it'll take a piece, like forgiveness. You see that in 2 Timothy 1.9. It'll say, you were saved. Yeah, because forgiveness is part of salvation. Or it'll take like sanctification in 1 Corinthians 1.18. It'll say, the word of cross is, fo the f is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We're not just having our sins forgiven over and over and over and over. That was once for all done on the cross. We are being sanctified, which is a part of salvation. So, what does Paul mean by saved here? That's the key question, right? Which piece of the salvation process is he pulling out to focus on and then connecting it to your pastors? I think he's especially focused on sanctification and perseverance. Sanctification and perseverance. That process, sanctification, that process whereby you are made to look more and more like Jesus. Your sin is being killed in you and perseverance where Christ keeps you in the faith by the power of his spirit. See, I cannot forgive your sins by keeping a close watch on myself and keeping a close watch on the teaching. I just can't do it. 
Pastor Scott might be able to, but I don't think so. I don't think he can. But what we can do is give you the word week in and week out and trust that the Spirit will use it to conform you to Christ's image and to keep you in the faith just like he said he would. Sanctification and perseverance. And what that means is that the preached word is necessary for your sanctification and your perseverance. You need it. You cannot expect to be saved if you're not a member of Christ's body, the church. Now hear me carefully, hear, me what, hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that attending church saves you. That is not what I mean. But you can't expect to be saved if you are not a part of the church because the church is the kingdom of God. The church is the household of God. The church is the pillar and buttress of truth. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the temple of the Spirit. The church, as a people considered corporately who gathers here on a Sunday morning, is where Christ has decided that he can be found until his return. If you want Jesus, you got to go to Jesus' place. This is where he is where the word is preached, where sacraments are administered, where God's people gather to worship him. How are you going to call yourself a part of God's people if you're never a part of God's people? It just doesn't work. And so corporate worship is a necessary part of your sanctification and your perseverance. God has given this, this thing that we do on a Sunday morning for your sake. And God has given pastors for your sake. And we actually know this to be true anyway, don't we? Right, you, you see all the, all the big name churches that blew up in the early 2000s and then kind of crumbled by like 2015 or whatever. Um, what happens when the hotshot pastor, amazing, gifted communicator, awesome guy, but did not keep watch on his life? What happens when he leaves and the church dissolves? The people don't scatter and go to other churches. Typically, they scatter and walk away from the faith. There's something about this relationship that is important for your soul. It's necessary for your sanctification and your perseverance. Y'all, sound preaching and sound living are absolutely critical for your health. The pastor's good preaching and faithful conduct are a matter of life and death. So what did we see here this morning? We saw that pastors command and teach the word of God. We saw that pastors are supposed to grow in character and gifting as an example to you to grow in your character and gifting. And we saw that this is a matter of life and death. May Christ preserve your pastors so that he will preserve you. Let's pray. Jesus, it's a unique privilege to uh, be able to communicate 
your word to your people. I pray that it doesn't fall on deaf ears. I pray especially for humility. This is the kind of message that a pastor can preach and uh, get cocky because of it. That's not, that's not it. That's not the way. Because it's all you by your spirit, Lord. We pray that souls are saved this morning, having heard the gospel, having heard just how committed you are to the church that you have gathered. Lord, guide us as we uh, go out and we try to live this. Guide our small group discussions over the week. May we be able to apply, apply this passage usefully and faithfully. May we look a little bit more like Jesus every day until we come to see him one day. It's in his name we pray. Amen.